Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new edition of the OPC Foundation podcast, the home of industrial interoperability. My name is Peter Seberg, and I'm your host. Today, we'll be talking to Brad Biddle. He is the OPC Foundation Council. Brad will talk about antitrust, intellectual property rights, patent licensing, and the different roles, open standards, and open source code play. Okay, let's go for it. Hello, Brad. How are you? Great, Peter. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Well, we've never had a lawyer on the show before. Can you explain why engineers and business planners are typical audience, why they should care about legal issues? Sure. One thing I find particularly fascinating about standards is that you know there are certainly you know cutting edge and sometimes quite complex technical issues, um, very complex high stakes business strategy issues, but also you know all of that's intertwined with some fairly complicated and high stakes legal issues. Mm. You know, for example, antitrust issues or competition law can be you know a very serious consideration for standards developers. Standards are you know, fundamentally about promoting cooperation between companies, but antitrust law or competition law is really focused on policing cooperation between companies. So there's always some tension there, which is, you know, I think, quite interesting. There's also you know, now some very high stakes patent licensing questions. There's business models out in the world focused on standards essential patents or SEP licensing that can be you know, high stakes from a financial point of view. And I think there's some intriguing issues there, particularly, you know, coming in the industrial automation world. And also open standards and open source software are, are worlds that are related, but distinct and, and increasingly colliding. And I think understanding some of the differences between open standards and open source software can be helpful for technologists or business strategists, you know, who are trying to you know, figure out the right tool to enable interoperability. Very good. We'll come back to those points shortly. I'm looking forward to to be hearing your answers. But first, can you give us a, a sense of your background? I already learned that both you and I worked at Intel in a former life, so to speak, and also about your current role. Sure. Yes. My current role is I do serve as outside general counsel to OPC Foundation. That's in the context of a small legal practice, a small team focuses on supporting standards development organizations and, and other tech consortia, open source software foundations and the like. So OPC is, is one of several clients that we support. As you mentioned, I did previously work at Intel and mm -hmm. uh, ran a group there up until about 2014 called the SIGs and Standards Practice Group or the Special Interest Group and Standards Practice Group. And Intel was a fascinating place to learn standards. Uh, you know, Back in the day, um, Intel really led on some important industry standards like USB, Bluetooth, uh, PCI Express. Mm -hmm. So they really kind of established a playbook for how companies work together you know, to create industry standards. Mm -hmm. I also study standards. I, I have a role at Arizona State University in the US. I live in Portland, Oregon in the US, but I um, am affiliated with Arizona State University School of Law and do uh, you know, some research and writing focused on standard setting. Very good. So you mentioned that antitrust is a, a current hot topic. Can you say more about that? Sure. I should just also make a terminology point that in the US and in some other countries, we call it antitrust law. In the EU and a number of other places, it's called competition law. Mm -hmm. They're really synonyms. And I alluded to earlier this you know, very you know, interesting tension you know, between 
this idea of companies cooperating in connection with standards and antitrust or competition law enforcers really being quite suspicious about the cooperation between competitors. This certainly isn't a new issue, but we see this in this current political environment where tech companies are facing, I think, increased scrutiny about their behavior on a number of different fronts. I think this tension is you know, sort of as prominent or as concerning as ever. And the lines between what's appropriate in terms of cooperation and what's inappropriate in terms of potential collusion aren't always perfectly clear. I think you're going to tell us later on. I can already share with you for the moment is that, you know, what happens in my brain, you telling me this, you know, whenever I have been over the last 20, 30 years in any of the, you know, organizations, maybe like OPC, the foundation, you come to that later, but other, you know, technology organizations here in Germany, where I'm based, typically, you know, people would always be given, you know, a list of rules of which maybe you talk about later. So they were always very aware of the fact that, you know, they were allowed to do certain things together, but not others. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. So can you share with us some examples of uh, organizations that have gotten themselves into trouble? Certainly, yes. And it does happen. You know, So this is not just a theoretical issue. There are examples in many different countries. Uh, as a US lawyer, it's easiest for me to pick US mm -hmm. examples. And there are a couple of examples that went all the way to the US Supreme Court, the highest court in the US. Uh, one example would be an organization or the case is called Allied Two-Bits. The example there was that a organization was held liable because they allowed one industry segment to pack a key vote with, you know, several hundred additional voters who had never shown up before in, in the organization. They suddenly showed up to defeat a proposal that was favored by a, a different industry segment, allowing the organization to, you know, or allowing these parties to not really play in a fair way, you know, created some liability for the organization itself. There was another example, uh, the case is called Hydro Level, where a committee chair would falsely declared that a competitor's product was non-compliant, and that had significant marketplace impacts for that competitor, and the organization itself was held liable in that case. Often when these issues come up, though in the context of standards, it's because a party is claiming that their technology is wrongfully excluded from a standard, that the party wants their technology to be in a standard. Mm. And uh, historically, the standards development organizations would typically win those cases when they arose. But um, back in 2013, there was a case involving ETSI, the European Telecommunications Standards Institute, mm -hmm. that uh, I think really rattled the uh, standards development organizations because ETSI was unable to dismiss that case. So they were stuck in complex, expensive litigation, and they ultimately settled the case. Um, we also saw, you know, during the Trump administration here in the U.S., there was some unusual cases focused on really tr trying to protect the interests of patent owners. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, we'll see the theory in those cases was that if parties were trying to limit what patent owners could charge, that that would be deemed some kind of buyer's cartel, you know, in violation mm -hmm. of antitrust law. But I think we're going to see less of that in connection with the Biden administration, and we don't see the same that same theory arising elsewhere. Okay, so what do standards organizations then do to mitigate antitrust risks? Sure, this along the lines of what you were discussing earlier, you know, there's something of a standard playbook for standards organizations. Typically, organizations will have an antitrust policy, you know, put on regular antitrust training. 
you know, remind participants at the beginning of meetings about what behavior is appropriate, what's not appropriate. And all of that really should be in the context of a broader and antitrust compliance program. And so for participants, this really can be a super high stakes issue. There's risks for the organization itself, but there's also in many ways, the greater risks for a party who's participating in standards is for their own company, you know, who could be potentially, you know, held liable for, you know, an antitrust violation, which can be very expensive or even have criminal penalties. And so I think it's really key for for the participants to understand at least, you know, sort of generally the kinds of, you know, risks they're trying to avoid, like avoiding any perception of illegal collusion, you know, things like price fixing or market allocation, you know, a group of, you know, a buyer's cartel, or, you know, allowing some dominant player to monopolize a market. You know, if, if someone participating in an organization sees anything that even hints at those kinds of issues, it's worth escalating both to their internal counsel and to the organization counsel. Right. It's always finding, I don't know, the, the middle ground between you typically come together with, you know, like in OPC Foundation, I don't have it in my mind how, how many hundreds of members they have, you have. So it's okay, I understand, to be, you know, going for a standard, but only on the basis of certain rules, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, clearly there are, you know, social benefits associated with standardization. And so antitrust enforcers definitely recognize that, that there there are clear benefits. And so, you know, playing by the rules in and facilitating cooperation, you know, in the context of standard setting is definitely allowed. There's just a sort of a slippery slope potentially from permissible cooperation to impermissible collusion and just critical for participants to stay on the right side of that line. Mm. So intellectual property rights have come up a few times. And you you mentioned earlier that patent licensing is a hot topic right now. Can you explain this? Sure. It's a complicated topic. So bear with me if it takes a moment to sort of walk through it. There are other kinds of intellectual property, you know, beyond patents. So there's copyright, there's trademarks, uh, trade secrets. So sometimes even the term intellectual property can be a little confusing, but but mm. focusing specifically on patents. The key idea here or where the complexity arises is that implementations of standards are likely to implicate patented technology. Mm. That could be because perhaps, you know, the participant, you know, owns a patent on some technology that they intentionally contributed into the standard. It could be the case that participants are collaborating, coming up with ideas, and they, you know, inadvertently come up with an idea that actually reads on some patent owned by some participant or by a third party. And potentially talking about lots of patents. So we, you know, there's been studies about, you know, the mobile phones, for example, implicate, you know, tens of thousands of patents. And so, mm. so almost certainly, you know, there's a, you know, any given implementation, you know, the odds of it reading on, you know, some patents somewhere are fairly high. And and different industry segments have dealt with this in very different ways. You know, so the kind of traditional computer hardware space that I, you know, knew and you knew back in like from the Intel mm. world, there one way that they dealt with that is to say, okay, anybody who owns a patent that's relevant for the standard is going to make it available royalty-free. So you just contribute your patent to technology and there's no royalties associated with it. And there's some important examples of that model. USB or Bluetooth are both big examples. There's another approach that's used, which is sometimes called RAND or FRAND. So reasonable and non-discriminatory licensing or 
fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory licensing, and those are really synonyms. But in the traditional hardware space, there was a kind of phenomenon of ostensibly RAND. So theoretically, someone could assert patent royalties, but it almost never happened. You know, like the PCI SIG or PCI Express is an example of that. Mm-hmm. And we see in like in other industry segments, in the generally in the internet space, you know, there's been you know, either explicit or de facto royalty-free kind of environment. So similarly to what we saw in some of the computer hardware stuff, where even where there ostensibly is an opportunity to collect royalties, in fact, that's very rare. And then we see other examples like in the consumer electronics industry where they had a very different approach. So we see things like the CD and uh, and DVD spaces where you know companies in the consumer electronics world would get together and create these little mini patent pools where parties would contribute technology that's patented, but they would all decide up front on some maximum royalty rate. So if you want to license the DVD, for example, there's at least a predictable you know, royalty associated with implementing that technology. Telecom is the world that's, that's quite interesting in that the model there has been this RAND or FRAND model, but there in fact have been many, many patent royalty assertions. So what we typically see there is that you know companies contribute technology into a standard and then you know once that standard is implemented they'll go and collect royalties you know based on you know products that implement those standards. Mm-hmm. That seems to have worked reasonably effectively in the telecom world but uh, it's as it's spreading really to other spaces we see some controversies arising. So, you know, it's sort of one thing when you know 2% of the price of a you know, old school, you know, mobile handset, you know, that's, that's sort of one scenario. But when we see the same patent owners, you know, claiming, you know, 2% of the price of a $70,000 automobile, you know, that that's a high stakes, you know, Mm -hmm. dispute about, you know, what's the appropriate price for the technology in that context. And I think this is the key idea for us in the industrial automation world that perhaps, you know, this model, you know, which has not been prominent in the industrial automation world today, it may be coming for industrial automation just because it is such an attractive business model for patent owners. So I understand you shared with us today a variety of models, you know, dealing with IP, with intellectual property rights exist. Is any of those models better than others? It's it's hard to say. I think there's there's not a one size fits all answer. I mean, it does seem like the Frand model has worked well for the telecom space, but that could be partly due to the unique circumstances uh, in that space. You know, it's really important to get cutting edge, you know, technical contributions like way up front before the market's really developed. Um, you know, really before there's a product business, because their goal is to make a transition from you know, 4G to 5G, for example. And so at least the theory, and perhaps it's accurate, is that, you know, creating incentives that reward innovative contributions, you know, with royalties is the right way to get parties to contribute that kind of innovative technology. But in a lot of other contexts of standard setting, it's really more, the standards are more like a, you know, do we drive on the right side of the road? Do we drive on the left side of the road mm-hmm. kind of decision? And it it doesn't really matter which is whether it's driving on the left or driving on the right. But it just matters that everybody's doing the same thing, and and in that context, it's you know it's not clear that creating a windfall for the party who just happens to have the left side you know driving on the road patent, for example, 
would, would really make sense, you know, or, or if there is a patent associated with driving on the left side, as my, you know, kind of as an example, mm-hmm. we would just pick something different, the right side technology. So in those cases, it seems like creating the, the royalty bearing model, particularly when it's a Frand or Rand model, is, it's ambiguous and uncertain, you know, really what an implementer is going to have to pay, you know, that there's real cost associated with that. And it's not clear that there's relevant benefits. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, there, we definitely see contexts where we understand that people are going to make innovative contributions, you know, without the, the incentive of separate royalties. Plenty of examples where we see, you know, we're, we're getting these good enough contributions without the downside of that risk and uncertainty. So, so I think it's not clear that the brand model really is better, you know, which I think some people argue. I think in some contexts, royalty-free is better, but I really do think ultimately it's context-specific. So then, what model does the OPC Foundation use? I'm sure that our listeners want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, because it, it is a very important high-stakes question, mm. I think, for, for implementers. Um, yeah, so Ro- OPC Foundation is a royalty-free organization. So participants make a promise to license their their SEPs, their standards essential patents on what we call royalty-free and otherwise RAND terms. So it's royalty-free and otherwise reasonable and non-discriminatory. So, you know, if and when they get they get requested to do so. And, and our experience has been that we get lots of innovative contributions without the incentive of patent royalties. Mm-hmm. And then the way this works pragmatically is that implementers just go ahead and implement, you know, knowing that if, if they ever need to get a license, they can get one. Typically, we don't, implementers don't go and do sort of formal patent clearance so they'll just implement the, the specs knowing that they're available royalty-free. And this royalty-free model is, is really largely consistent with the historical practices in the industrial automation world. Although interestingly, there, there are many different industrial automation standard-setting organizations, really a surprising number to, to me you know, kind of compared to other mm-hmm. industry segments. And not all of them do have explicit royalty-free policies. And that, that can create some tricky issues when we're, we're trying to collaborate with other organizations. Mm-hmm. Not sure why that could be. Maybe it says something about the, what is it, the the, the level of development in which we are in industrial mm-hmm. automation. I'm, I'm not sure if you want to comment on that, but what would then be those tricky issues that you talked about? Yeah, on the, on the kind of business question of like why there are so many uh, standards mm. organizations, it, that, it, that it really fascinates me because it, it's quite different than other uh, industry segments where I've been active. And I do think it is an interesting legacy of how the industrial automation world has evolved, but mm-hmm. it's not always clear to me that there's current benefit in having so many different uh, organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it does create challenges, as I mentioned, you know, there are some small, some large organizations. And in this particular space, you know, a lot of the standardization work is done by collaborations between the organizations, as opposed to just collaboration between companies themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, something that we definitely experience in OPC Foundation, we've uh, our companion specs that build upon the OPC UA foundational specs. There's good reasons for cooperating with these different orgs because they're often, you know, domain experts in their particular area. So we do a lot of this kind of collaboration with different organizations. But mm-hmm. the, the tricky issue is that sometimes these organizations have different incompatible IPR policies, you know, so maybe, you know, our, our IPR rules are everybody promises to license royalty free. Somebody else's policy might say everybody promises to license 
only other members or only on friend terms. The, the tricky thing for an implementer then would be, oh, if I'm picking up some technology, you know, that it has some contributions that came in under the OPC terms and some contributions that came in under some other organization's terms, what are my rights? Do I get this royalty free? Do I owe somebody a royalty? So there's, you know, and, and there's some high stakes risks there for the implementer. So what we've done to address this in the in the OPC context, which I, I kind of like to think about as, uh, uh, you know, we, we see amazing technical innovations happening in the OPC context. I, I like to think that maybe we, you know, bring some innovative legal solutions, but we, mm-hmm. we have something called the MOCA, the, the uh, Multi-Organization Collaboration Agreement. That is a, a, an IPR framework that is really designed to address this complexity where we try to bring in all of our contributions under the royalty-free terms, you know, our OPC royalty-free terms, and make sure that all of the contributors, whether they're OPC members or not OPC members, abide by those terms or are bound by those terms. And that the goal fundamentally is to give implementers clarity that if they implement this OPC foundation spec, including our companion specs, you know, that we've done collaboratively with other organizations, that they will, you know, be able to get a royalty-free license and, and fundamentally create a royalty-free ecosystem. We want all of the parties who are benefiting from the implementation of the spec to be obligated to, you know, grant royalty-free licenses to any patents they have that are that read on that spec and, and enable ultimately this royalty-free ecosystem. Sounds you've found a solution to the tricky issues as you as you mentioned in before. And nothing wrong with you know you being proud is what I hear um, <laughs> with having brought in a creative um, legal solution because that means in the end, as you say, for those parties involved that they're gonna have this uh, royalty-free ecosystem. So yeah, I would have made that link kind of myself uh, already as well because, but you're gonna talk about that because on one hand I say, well, this is mine and if you wanna use it, I want money for it kind of. And maybe the other hand is, and that's then the question going to be. So you talked about open standards and open source code. So they play different roles. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And this is you know conceptually related to the IPR questions, mm-hmm. but there's you know kind of a, a different set of issues here. I think um, also you know kind of quite interesting. And the patent questions are just potentially so high stakes. You know, from a financial point of view. This question around open standards, open source, I, I find it maybe just more of a strategic question around fundamentally, if we're trying to facilitate interoperability, and I really think this is a like fundamentally interesting thing about this world we live in, industrial automation, or more broadly, information technology, that interoperability between products and services made by different parties is, is so fundamental, how uh, technology works and Achieving interoperability is not easy. And it's really, you know, I think a small miracle, you know, when we see that products from different parties can actually work together. So open standards are incredibly important tool for enabling interoperability. Open source code can also be an important tool for enabling interoperability. It's just kind of different. Mm-hmm. You know, so we we see that a standard is really about, you know, something a, a standard can be implemented any number of different ways. You know, it could be implemented in hardware and software or in some combination of that or in Python or Java. Whereas open source software, it's a particular implementation in particular code, you know, licensed under 
a particular open source license. Mm-hmm. And um, the open source code can sometimes be very effective at enabling interoperability, but it's often just for like a moment in time because the open source license, open source software licenses all have this feature that anyone can change the code, mm-hmm. you know, is baked into the whole definition of open source. That's a freedom associated with open source code. But standards, you know, aren't designed to fork. They're they're designed to be, you know, sometimes it takes a long, you know, long slog to get agreement between different parties. And then the standard, you know, really needs to live in a way that is not easily changed. And so typically these, you know, complex governance processes controlled by the standard setting organization to manage changes as opposed to giving everyone the freedom to just go off and and, and sort of make their own version. Mm-hmm. And so for long-term ecosystem interoperability, open standards are really important. We want everybody to be able to participate and we want to then have something that really can serve as a foundation for long-term interoperability. Open source code can be complementary to that. We definitely see that. And OPC Foundation does a lot of that where we use code in a complementary way to help support our standards. So we can create you know, reference implementations, for example. So we say, okay, here's the specification. And here's one way to implement that specification in code. And when we do things like that, it can make it much easier and faster to speed up the adoption of those standards. But but fundamentally, I think that builds on the open standard as opposed to you know, replacing the open standard with, with open source code. Brad, thank you very much. I recall as I was more strongly still involved, and I need to be careful what time, what year I put to that, but it must have been like maybe four or five years ago when I believe around that time, maybe it was a bit longer, but shorter, OPC Foundation introduced open source. And that was that was very interesting, not always <laughs> easy. But of course, open source has been having a a huge development since. So thank you very much for clarifying the difference here between the standard, the picture I have in my brain, like, you know, everybody needing to come together to one point. And if they want to make a change, still be on a road to the same point further in the future, rather than the other way around the fork, as you suggested, with the open source code. So thank you very much for explaining that, for explaining all the other specific legal topics that have been, you know, untypical maybe so far in our series. But I'm sure that not only me, that a number of engineers, but also the business people have been very interested in listening to your very detailed knowledge. So if you, dear listener, want to learn more about OPC UA technology or about the OPC Foundation, You may want to listen to the preceding OPC Foundation podcast editions or visit the website at opcfoundation.org. Maybe you have a proposal for topics or are interested in appearing on the OPC Foundation podcast. Maybe you want to join one of the OPC UA companion specification working groups. Or maybe you want to become a member of the OPC Foundation. Or otherwise, please mail the OPC Foundation at office at opcfoundation.org. We'll put both the website URL and the mail address in the podcast notes. Yeah, in future editions, I'll be doing interviews with guests from companies like Pebble and Fox, Centix, 
on topics such as Ethernet APL, Automation ML, and future companion specifications. Yeah, it was great to have you with us today. If you liked what you heard, give us a thumbs up, spread the news, and looking forward to have you with us again. And Brett, thank you very much for having been our guest today. Thank you, Peter. It's really my pleasure.